Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into one news story. I'm Christine Bohan, stepping in for Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, the story of the Anna Creasel trial. On Tuesday, two 14-year-old boys became the youngest convicted murderers in the history of the state. The two, known as Boy A and Boy B, in order to protect their identities, were both found guilty of the murder of 14-year-old Anna Creasel. Boy A was also found guilty of aggravated sexual assault. Both boys were just 13 at the time of the attack. This was an unusual case, and it was a brutal one, and it was an extremely moving one. Even reporters used to covering what happens in Irish courts every day spoke about how harrowing it was. One described it as the nastiest, most difficult trial he had covered in 12 years of court reporting. The court heard that Anna was a teenager who loved to sing and dance and who always looked for friends but found it hard to make them. Her parents sat through every single day of the seven-week-long trial of the boys who killed their daughter. And when they came out of the court on Tuesday, they spoke very briefly to the media. Her dad, Patrick, described Anna as their strength. Her mother, Geraldine, said that Anna was a dream come true who will stay in their hearts forever loved and forever cherished. There are a lot of questions that we still don't know the answers to, including the boys' motive. But there's a lot that we do know. And our reporter, Gareth McNamee, was in court for the trial and he joins me here today. And just before we start, this is a discussion about a murder case. And so listeners may find some of the details distressing. Gareth, what happened in court on Tuesday? At about four or five minutes past two o'clock on Tuesday, we got word that the jury had reached its verdict. Now, they'd been out since about Wednesday the week previously um, and they were at about 14 hours or so of deliberation and um, they came back the court was as packed as you, as you might expect although the public was not allowed in it was being held in camera so there was a lot of members of media the guardie barristers for, for both sides and obviously family involved the Creative family as well as the families of boy A and boy B so the jury did come back handed its piece of paper over to the registrar who read out the verdicts of each boy guilty on every count. So you have Boy A convicted of murder and aggravated sexual assault of Anna Kriegel and then Boy B who was found guilty of her murder even though it was the prosecution's case that he didn't actually lay a hand on her but he, that he lured her to Glenwood House on the border between Lucan and Leakslip and he knew what was going to happen to her. I was actually sat uh, one row in front of Boy B's family and when the, the guilty verdict came in for him he kind of turned to his mother, kind of clasped her hand and said, I'm guilty, uh, kind of questioning. I don't know whether he didn't know that that was the verdict being handed. I didn't know if he understood what was happening in the court or that he couldn't believe what had just happened. And so the family of Boy B kind of just all kind of sat together and, and, and hugged and cried. His father became quite irate, actually, in, in the initial aftermath. He, he started um, directing expletives to members of Agarda Shiakana involved in the case, um, sarcastically clapping to the court as if to say, you've done a job well done. Um, he burst through the doors of the, of the of the court originally and was instructed by, by Gardaí to leave the court because he couldn't control his emotions at the time, which is understandable. His 14-year-old son had just been convicted of probably one of the most heinous murders in the, in the history of the state. Boy A's family were, were, were situated in a different area of the court. Their story was a, was a bit bit different due to the, the overwhelming evidence against uh, Boy A, the DNA evidence. and um, They also cried, but they moved away into a consultation room um, where they were 
spoken to by their barristers before both boys were then brought into custody. In in Oberstown in North County. They're now in Oberstown, yes. And when are they being sentenced? They will be sentenced on July 15th um, by Mr Justice Paul McDermott. So within those four weeks, there are going to be a few kind of reports prepared, the, the likes of your probation reports, psychiatric reports, these kind of things will all be, be furnished to the judge. We're also going to hear some victim impact statements. I know we heard briefly from the family of Anna Kriegel, but there will be a much more detailed and more thorough victim impact statement, as you can imagine, um, especially due to the, the horrific way that she did die. And adults would receive a mandatory life sentence if they're found guilty mm-hmm. of murder, but that isn't necessarily the case for due to these, the, the age of these two boys? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So usually it's, as you said, mandatory life, but for children the judge has discretion. Now, there are, have been previous cases involving minors who've been convicted of murder, 15-year-olds and such. Uh, in one case, I remember one child received a 10-year sentence with a review afterwards. So if these boys do receive a 10-year sentence, they will be in Oberstown until 18. Um, from there, they will be moved to an adult prison where they will serve the rest of their sentence. Before we go into what happened, I think we should talk a bit about Anna herself. Um, I think for a lot of people, she would have either reminded them of themselves at that age or of another kid that they would have known when they were 14, um, especially around how much she wanted friends and how hard it was to find them. So what, what did you learn about her from the trial, from the court case? This is probably one of the most kind of heartbreaking aspects of this entire case. Now, I'm doing this job seven or eight years and I've never had a, a case affect affect me in, in, in such a way where it kind of feels like it's a punch to the stomach almost when you hear because it reminds you of either being yourself or as you say someone you know and I was 14 like most teenagers she had her problems she was in counselling she she was struggling in school she found it hard to adapt from primary school to secondary school yeah that was yeah. a big thing for her and she was getting bullied a lot as well by she was she was five nine. She's very tall for her age. She was looked different to looked older than other looked a lot older yeah. than the, the other girls in her in her year. And anything that makes you different makes you a target when you're that age. Especially when you're so self conscious about absolutely everything mm-hmm. when you're when you're that age. But we did hear from Geraldine Creagel, uh, Anna's mother, and she said that you know Anna loved music. She loved dancing. She loved singing. And uh, every time she come home from work, Anna be in the front room. She'd be singing or she'd be making a video for a, for a social media platform. She had her own channels on on uh, YouTube and and Instagram the likes that most teenagers do and yeah we were we were kind of given a picture of just this lovely kid this lovely young girl who had her whole life ahead of her and who, who, who was just struggling to to fit in with the people around her and and she was made this target of derision and and she was made um to feel different she was called by boy b in his statements to Gardy. she was a weirdo someone he didn't want to to hang out with she was someone who was always looking for like he said she wore slutty tops to to demand the attention of the boys and but Geraldine paints a very different picture in her testimony. She says that, yes, while Anna did look a lot older than her age, she was incredibly immature for her age. She was someone who her resource teacher in primary school described as a very vulnerable person. Uh, that resource teacher rang Geraldine Creagel just as Anna was to begin secondary school. And she said she was terrified for her because, because she was so vulnerable, because she was so kind and, and caring and too trustworthy. It reminds you of the cruelty of children at that age. Uh, when- Reading the comments from Boy B in particular, um, how harsh children can be to other other children, and Anna hadn't really found her tribe. That was the. the I think that was thing. yeah. I think that was the the feeling. All right, but especially in that Boy B interview, I think we're going to come to a little bit later on. It, it was almost 
they saw her as, you know, someone nobody cares about. Mm. Um, she had no friends. She was different. She was weird. She was... she. This trial, shocking are the, the details of it, but I think everybody can can think back to when they're that age and they can think back to your insecurities and your and your and your worries and then to hear that a fella that you fancied wanted to come and want you to come meet him. Just speaking of that, can you talk a bit about how the case started and how the story went public? Yeah. Um, as far as I remember, there was a press release from Garthi that came into newsrooms about Anna going missing. And that would have been the first time that, that people heard about this. So can you talk us through uh, how the story unfolded? Yes, as you said, like we received the usual Garda press release, um, which we receive, as you know, many of them uh, on a daily basis about people going missing. And, and a lot of the times they do turn up and everything's fine. But sadly, this was not one of those cases. Uh, Anna went missing on the 14th of May 2018. She had gone to counselling earlier in the day. She'd taken a half day from school and then she'd gone home. And then there was a knock on the door, five o'clock that, that evening. Uh, her father, Patrick, described how usually there'd be knocks on the door, but it'd be for other people in the house. It would never be for, for Anna. But this time it was different. Um, Boy B was at the front door. And she'd known Boy B for a few years. He said that Boy A wanted to see her. And I think prosecution counsel Brendan Grehan described that all of Anna's dreams had come true at this point. This is a, uh, a fella that she'd fancied for a while and had previously asked out. Said no, but so she went down to St. Catherine's Park where she was not seen again. Her, her mother came home at around six o'clock that evening and uh, she asked her, her husband, Patrick, uh, where's Anna? To which Patrick said, um, she, oh, she's gone out. Someone called for her. And then she said, but nobody calls for Anna. And they said it was boy B, and especially a boy never called for Anna. And so she immediately got worried. She, along with um, friends and family, started looking for her. And then about eight o'clock, after all phone calls and text messages weren't being answered, they decided this is so out of character for her that they go to the Garda station. So they went to the Leakslip Garda station where they reported her missing. Um, now for Gardy, people go missing all the time. They do show up within a couple of hours, but that's not to say they weren't taking it seriously. A full instant report was made on the Pulse Garda system and um, investigations did begin. That evening, uh, I believe it was Garda Conor Muldoon from Leakslip Garda station called to the home of Boy B after uh, Geraldine Crajel told uh, Gardy that she was that he, he had called for that day. Uh, so around, I think, believe it was around half ten at night they called to the home of Boy B, knocked on the door. He was woken up from his sleep. He comes down and uh, the guard describes how he kind of cowered behind his mother. Kind of, you know, have you seen Anna? That kind of thing. To which he said, uh, oh no, I saw her in the park. And, and that was it. There was no mention of Boy A at this stage. Um, so, so he acknowledged seeing her in the park, like calling for her and seeing her in the park that afternoon. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he did. He said, oh yeah, but I left around quarter to six. I came home, finished my homework, watched a bit of anime and went to bed. So Gardy Wright took notes of this and said, no, the next day she still hadn't shown up. So it was becoming a bit more of a serious situation here due to the, the, the how out of character this was. For mm, and missing teenagers often turn up after a number of hours Absolutely. or, yeah, there's usually kind of a, a path that this follows. Mm -hmm. And this is not the path. This so this was obviously incredibly strange for Anna. Firstly, not to answer her phone. Secondly, not to be at home. There was Everything that could have been out of character was out of character for her. So the following morning at the 15th, um, Gardy once again called to the home of Boy B. And it's at this point, he mentions Boy A. He goes, well, actually, I was, I was in the park with Boy A and Anna at the time. So Gardy are thinking, right, well, the story's already changed here a little bit. Um, would you come down to the park and show us the route that you took with Anna on the day? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So 
Boy B, Boy A, and Boy A's father are in the park at that stage with Gardy. Uh, and they're they're walking through and they're showing the, the ways in which they they walk that day with Anna. And um Boy B says to um Sergeant Paul Dunn from Leaks of Garda Station, he says, Oh, this is as far as I walked. And so at that point they the two of them, Boy A and Boy B, shared a look, as he put it in his testimony. The the guard that's the guard said in his testimony. He saw a look between the two boys. And he said, Oh, I didn't like that straight away. And at that exact moment he knew something was wrong, he said. And he said he's been a he's been a member of Garda Shea for a long time and he knows when something's up. Um, as the, the search continued, it went on for another day, there was nothing found. And then on the 17th of May at around 3pm, there was a divisional search team um, kind of scouring areas and abandoned places around uh, around the St. Catherine's Park area when they um, they began to search Glenwood House. It, Glenwood House is a completely abandoned, derelict building. Its, its roof is closed, it's caved in. It's used by a lot of teenagers as, as a bit of a DOS house to go drinking in and stuff mm-hmm. like that. A member of that search team shouted for the sergeant on duty to come as he believed he'd found something. He actually described that he said he'd, he'd found either a mannequin or something terrible. At that point, the sergeant entered Lemwood House where he discovered the body of, of Anna Kriegel. And at this point, just another reminder to listeners that we will be discussing details around how Anna died because, Gareth, she suffered an extremely violent death. Yeah, she was naked except for socks on her her feet, um, and there was very very serious um, injuries to her her face, neck, and shoulders, and there was a significant amount of blood uh, uh, in the house and on her body, and there was a significant number of scratches and scratches as well to her body. So once her body was discovered, how soon after this were the boys arrested, and how soon were they charged? So Anna's body was discovered on the seventeenth of May, uh, and. The two boys were arrested on the 24th of May, a week later, and that was due to the DNA evidence coming back, which which found that Boye's boots had Anna's blood on them. And at this point, Gardy arrested the two boys and began um, interviewing them. This seemed to come to court quite quickly compared mm-hmm. to other, um, other murder, murder cases, in part because of their age. And then when it did come to court, it was different to other murder trials, again, because of the age of, of the two accused. Can you talk about that and about how it differed to other trials? Yeah, this was quite interesting because it's technically it's a children's court within the central criminal court. Um, so what you usually would have would be judges and barristers wearing their, their usual kind of robes and stuff like that. But that, that wasn't happening here at all. They were just in suits and ties and, and that kind of thing. The Both the accused did not have to sit in the, the dock area. They sat with their parents. The even the structure of the court itself. So they, it began later, finished earlier and had breaks every maybe hour, hour and 15 minutes, which would not be the usual during the court. And even during some uh, some days of particularly um, harrowing evidence, uh, representations were made or applications were made by defence counsel to, to suspend the court for the day or an, an earlier time to which the judge um, mostly uh, acquiesced to or, or, or granted. But yeah, it was, it was quite an interesting, interesting difference to see that play out. What did you learn about boy A and boy B in, in court? What kind of teenagers were they? I'll start with boy A. Boy A on the face of it was your typical teenager he just he liked hanging out with his mates he liked um, sports he was into martial arts he liked rap music uh, heavy metal and he just uh, liked to go exploring with his friends and liked anime and different Netflix programs and video games and you know chatting online to his friends on playing games like Fortnite that hundreds of millions of people play every day but then what we didn't know was this 
kind of dark internet history and, 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 and these kind of more dark interests that he did have, you know. Which came up during the trial. Yeah, and it came up that um, stuff like his search histories and, and stuff like that. We had um, a screenshot of videos, so it was on his phone, uh, like 15 most gruesome torture methods in history, uh, abandoned places, places in Lucan. We also heard, well, the jury didn't hear this originally, but it's out now after the trial, that there was about twelve or 13,000 pornographic images on Boyer's phone. Many of them involved violent graphic sexual videos or incidents or whatever you want to call them. Uh, There was also searches for uh, child porn and bestiality porn. Stuff obviously that um, he wanted to remain remain hidden. It was actually on uh, two separate phones and not his normal phone that he'd be using on a day-to-day okay, basis. Okay, so he had a separate phone for this. So yeah. there was kind of an awareness there that there was, there that was this was different. There. Yeah, yeah. There was, okay. it was kind of um, a phone. Yeah, as it wouldn't be his primary phone that he'd be using to ring his mom or something like that, you know. Boy B, very similar again, just liked hanging out with friends going down the park going for walks um going to the local shop and center to hang out like you know just that kind of thing he liked he liked to just arts and crafts um kind of making stuff from sticks um liked just just being with friends and just doing their usual teenage stuff and what was what was the relationship like between the two boys because I had thought that they were good friends mm. but then from reading your reports it seems more like boy A thought that boy B was a really good friend almost his best friend but boy B didn't think of boy A as being a real friend at all so what was the dynamic between the two I think they had their typical teenage mates relationship where you know, they, they could be great mates at the start and then someone does something really stupid and then they're not friends for a while. And that's that's kind of the... The nature of teenage friendship yeah, in some ways. I think that's the feeling I got from it as well. They were friends, definitely were friends. Whether or not they were best friends, as Boyer said, um, remains to be seen, but they definitely were close. Um, they would hang out uh, at lunch together. They'd go... They'd go They'd be the people going exploring, exploring these abandoned places and, and going up and climbing trees and all that kind of thing. Just seem to have your, your, your typical, um, normal teenage relationship. Except for the moment that Boy B described in his interviews where Boy A came up to him at school a month before Anna, Anna's body was discovered and uh, suggested killing Anna Criagio. And this is something that was brought up in the trial as evidence mm-hmm. of the fact that Boy B was aware that this was part of the reason why he was calling for, for Anna that day. Mm-hmm. So their statements never really reconciled. Just coming back to court again, their yeah. statements never reconciled. They they com- separate versions of what happened. Did they converge in any way? I mean, what were the differences between the statements that they gave to Gardaí and what were the what were the similarities? So there's two types of statements. Uh, one is witness statement. One is when someone's a suspect. It's, different protocols have to be put in place for when someone is a suspect, it's recorded, etc. Um, the original statement were oh where did you go that day with Anna so it kind of all kind of stacked up at the start Um, Boy B said he called for Anna on behalf of Boy A because Boy A wanted to discuss relationship issues with her so they met in St Catherine's Park Um, Boy B said that Boy A and Anna were chatting away he told her Boy A told her that he wasn't interested in her and uh, at that stage they said they all went their separate ways and went home now at that stage Boy A in his statement says he's walking home when he realised there was two men walking behind him and they were walking and they get walking faster and faster and he felt a bit unsafe. So he said he sped up and at that point the two guys uh, allegedly jumped him uh, and beat him up. Uh, he was bloodied, he was he was injured um, and he, he, he had gone home. Now what we now know now 
is that was all lies. That was, there, was, there were no two men. The injuries he sustained were Anna fighting for her life. So at the start, there were these similarities in their stories. But after their arrests, things started to change. Boy B in his interviews with Gardy, when he was pushed a bit further to talk a bit more, a little bit more would come out each time. A little bit more would come each out each time. And Gardy, very, very seasoned, very experienced Gardy, knew that there was a lot there that he wasn't saying. And there was about 15 hours of interviews with Boy B um, compared to Boy A, which was not as much at all, because they knew that more and more they spoke, the more and more he'd feel comfortable and, and more would come out about Anna's final moments. Both boys pleaded not guilty in court, so which is which is a kind of a common occurrence in a lot of murder trials. But did they offer, what was the defence that they offered or did they offer a defence? Yeah, this is once again a bit of a, a strange aspect of the trial because as it was going on, as the prosecution case was was put before the jury and before the court, even the journalists were in our, chatting away at, at lunchtime were going, I wonder what the, what the defence is going to be here, you know? And there really wasn't one. Which is, a, again, a common occurrence in, yeah. in murder trials. Because like- it's obviously the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the guilt. It's not on the defence to prove innocence. So it's, it is a common enough occurrence um, that defence won't put forward any, uh, bring any witnesses and that kind of thing. In their closing statements, senior counsel for boy A, Patrick Gageby, said to the jury that, you know, there wasn't any solid evidence that boy A planned to kill Anna, which the jury rejected. Um, but Damien Colgan, the senior counsel for Boy B, said he put this argument forward for for Boy B, and it's something I think which also resonated with a lot of people and kind of made people think was that if Boy B knew that he was bringing Anna to her death, firstly, why would he call to the house where he's known, that the parents know him, knock on the door and ask for Anna? Why would he walk through an estate where he's he's known by by everybody? Uh, walk through a park where he knows the CCTV cameras and why, if he is, as Damien Coggan said, if he is, you know, if he knew all these things, then is he the greatest pretender, the greatest actor you've ever seen? That's the way he put it. And I think that was that was the question that the jury had to answer in relation to Boy B. Now, it was never said that he touched her or anything like that or attacked her or physically assaulted her or anything at all. But the question for the jury was, did he know? what he was doing and it took them a little over 14 hours to say yes he did know and do we know they, because they spent such a long time deliberating do we know was this spent equally on both boys or do we know if they spent more time on one than another so you know you don't really know but we kind of got a little bit of an indication um about their thinking due to what they were requesting from uh, from the exhibits officers and that kind of thing so at the start um they requested to see the alleged murder weapons, so it was a piece of door frame that was covered in Anna's blood uh, and hair, um, as well as a, a half kind of a concrete block, which on all sides had Anna's blood on it. Then, as the days were getting were going on, they requested all the interviews with Boy B. As I said earlier, there was about 15 to 18 hours worth of videos between Boy B. So I think at this point, we kind of knew that the jury had dispensed with Boye, had made their decision, be that guilty or not guilty with Boye, and had moved on to Boy B. And so, as I said, we were coming back for from lunch at two o'clock. The jury was sent back out at, t- at two o'clock, and within four minutes they were back. And there was kind of, they, I think they were, it was kind of, <laughs> maybe they were sitting down kind of having their lunch, making sure 
They were 100% on both yeah, verdicts. exactly. Yeah, this was obviously something the jury spent a lot of time on to make sure that they were happy with the verdict that they that they eventually uh, gave. Yeah. Um, and so what happened, so both boys are being held in Oberstown now until mm-hmm. until sentencing on July 15th. Correct. Um, Garthy have warned people about sharing images of the boys on social media because it will be a breach of their anonymity due to their age. Mm-hmm. Will they be anonymous for the rest of their lives? Will they ever be identified? They will never be identified under... The law, as we have it now, the Children's Act is, is very clear. Uh, you can never name uh, the boys involved. Uh, you can never name the child witnesses who came forward, the youth witnesses who came forward. And unless that law has changed, um, boy A and boy B will continue to have uh, anonymity for the rest of their lives. So even given all this, the one thing that we don't know is the motive. We don't know why they chose Anna. We don't know why they decided to kill somebody. Did anything come out in the trial to try and explain this, to try and help us to understand why this happened? The short answer is no. Um, nothing came out in the trial which would explain a motive, would explain why they chose Anna, other than maybe Boy B in his testimony saying that, you know, she was she was weird, she was someone that wasn't liked by anybody. Maybe does that say, you know, they, they, they chose her because nobody liked her? Maybe Because she was vulnerable, because she was isolated. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But listen, the only two people who know why... Anna Creatal died, are the two boys. Finally, the public wasn't allowed in the courtroom, so there was a very small number of people there every day, including the media. What was it like being in the courtroom? What was the atmosphere? And was it like any other court case that you've covered? Yeah, it's kind of like something I touched on at the start here, where I said, um, reporting on crime for a long time, relatively long time. And is this the first case that actually had an effect on me? Um, Hearing, you know, nobody called for Anna... Uh, nobody liked her she was a weirdo all these terrible things to hear these fears that you have that you as a child do do people think I'm weird do people think I'm this and that and just to hear how she was brought to her death and how she died it's just it does get to you it does it really does Um, but I have to say that Anna Anna Kriegel's family conducted themselves and I don't know how they did it I have nothing but admiration for them um and they were in court, Every her parents were in court mm. every single day, stayed there throughout for all the evidence, didn't leave the court, which is a strength of character that I can't even imagine. And it's it's so, such a testament to the strength of that family that they're able to keep themselves composed and keep themselves uh, occupied uh, during it. And as I said, I've, I have nothing but respect for them. OK, Gareth, thanks for coming in um, and talking this through with us. We'll leave it there. This episode is brought to you by producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. Special thanks to Gareth McNamee for his work. I'm Christine Bowen and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. If there's a story in the news you'd like us to cover, let us know. Email us at podcasts at thejournal.ie or tweet us at thejournal underscore IE. And in the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's the single biggest thing you can do to help other people find this podcast. Thank you, and we'll catch you next time.